Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. When particles hit the Earth during solar storms, they make some kind of weird music, and it comes through a magnetic field. So the new data shows that the Earth's magnetic field generates waves after being bombarded by solar wind, energetic particles, and they flow from the sun's atmosphere and out into the solar system. To turn these electromagnetic waves into an audible song, researchers transformed the wave frequencies into sound waves. And you know the result? Well, I'll let you decide. So yeah, not really what I was expecting either. Uh, And the ESA, the European Space Agency, said it was more like the sounds of a science fiction movie than a natural phenomenon. Researchers say that these electromagnetic waves are usually humming in the Earth's magnetosphere at a relatively stable frequency, but then swarms of energetic particles from the sun hit our planet's protective magnetic shell and it bursts into a song of many frequencies. Uh, The ESA officials say, in quiet times when there's no solar storm striking the Earth, the song is lower in pitch and less complex, with one single frequency dominating the oscillation. Also that when solar storms hit, the frequency of the wave is roughly doubled, uh, with the precise frequency resulting in waves being dependent on the strength of the magnetic field in the storm. Uh, The cool celestial tunes uh, coming from the ESA Clusters mission, uh, it's actually, let's talk a little bit about this. So the spacecraft, it's a set, and it studies the Earth's magnetic field and how it interacts with solar particles. Uh, And the team led by Lucille Turk at the University of Helsinki generated the music from portions of nearly two decades of cluster observations. Uh, Also, the data that was collected during the sixth observation periods between 2001 and 2005, that's when the cluster flew through a region of the magnetic field called the foreshock, where particles first hit the magnetic field during solar storms. Uh, Besides all of the collecting of data that generated some of the really awesome sounds, uh, the cluster also revealed that the generated waves in Earth's magnetic field are more complex than scientists had previously thought. Uh, Observations suggest that the single dominant wave frequency that permeates the magnetic field during the quiet periods of a solar activity is not only doubled in frequency, but it can also divide into several different frequencies when a solar storm breaks against the foreshock. Turk said, our study reveals that solar storms profoundly modify the foreshock region. And the foreshock changes that could affect space weather related magnetic activity uh, closer to Earth's surface. So researchers, they're still trying to understand how exactly, you know, what's happening when a solar storm bombards the foreshock. 
but they usually know that it generates magnetic waves that can't go back into space. But why not? Well, it's all because the solar storm is pushing them towards our planet in a process that usually only takes about 10 minutes. So it's very quick uh, when you take into consideration all of the things that are going on. Uh, the ESA said, before they reach our atmosphere, the waves encounter another barrier, the bow shock, which in the magnetic region of space, uh, that slows down solar wind particles before they collide with Earth's magnetic field. The collision of the magnetic field waves modifies the behavior of the bow shock, possibly changing the way it processes the energy of incoming solar storms. The ESA then followed up by saying, Behind the bow shock, the magnetic fields of the Earth start to resonate at a frequency of the waves, and this contributes to transmit the magnetic disturbance all the way to the ground. So overall, researchers they hope to better understand how space weather from the sun affects our planet. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of record instances of satellites, radios, uh, more than even 150 years ago, uh, telegraph disruptions due to intense solar activity. So space researchers, they really want to closely study the sun and all of the patterns and activity and do their utmost to try and keep our planet's infrastructure safe. And let me tell you a little bit about this, because why, why is this so important? Well, solar flares and winds uh, from the sun not only affect weather patterns, but they can also show up possible areas for natural disasters. They can also knock out all our electronics in one whole, one big massive wipe. Think I'm crazy? Well, let's take a trip back in time. Let's go back to 1859. And it's really not that long ago if you think about it in reality. Uh, well, something called the Carrington event happened. And it was a very powerful geomagnetic storm, and it was during the solar cycle 10, which was between 1855 and 1867. A solar coronal mass ejection, or a CME, hit Earth's magnetosphere and induced one of the largest geomagnetic storms on record. The storm caused strong oral displays and wrought havoc with the telegraph systems. Now, keep in mind, this happened in 1859. Solar storm happening like that today, that would cause widespread failure. I mean, that would that could even collapse uh, our modern society. You'd have widespread electrical failures, blackouts, uh, and then you've got damage due to extended outages of the electrical grid. Uh, the solar storm, there was actually one back in 2012, and it was a similar magnitude. But luckily it passed the Earth's uh, orbit without striking the planet, and it missed it by, I think it was like nine days. So learning more about these types of events it's going to drastically improve our ability to predict how and, you know, what, what do we do to kind of prepare for such a big incoming threat. But we've got some NASA news that we have to talk about. And is NASA, they're getting ready. We've always heard this. Um, we're going to the moon, 2024. Uh, the space agency is currently working on designs for a lunar lander. And they had some really nice uh, futuristic designs that they shared. So just, they were showing off some concept art uh, for their landers, and it was going to use the top tier technology in order to not only land on Earth's moon, but also get all the data they collected. So Logan Kennedy, who's the project's lead systems engineer, said, This lander was designed for simplicity in mind to deliver a 300 kilogram rover to the lunar pole. 
We used a single string systems, minimal mechanisms, and existing technology to reduce complexity. Through advancements in precision landing, we plan to avoid hazards and to benefit the rover's operations. We will keep the rover alive through transit and landing so that it can do its job. As lunar landers grow to accommodate larger payloads, simple but high-performing landers with continuous payload volume will be needed. Uh, he also added, the concept developed by a diverse team of people over many years meets those needs. Uh, we hope that other lander designers can benefit from our work. So this lunar concept, it's the latest in the line of designs as NASA seeks input from the public and private partners as it makes headway for its upcoming Artemis moon program. So earlier this month, uh, Boeing showed off its crude moon lander idea, uh, one it says will require the fewest steps to get to the moon. And you know, earlier this month, NASA picked SpaceX's Starship, Blue Origin's Blue Moon, and three other commercial lunar lander companies to bid on proposals for this Artemis program. So, but we've got to take into consideration, after Apollo 11, okay, you had, you know, Neil Armstrong, you had Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon, you know, only 10 more men, uh, they were all Americans, walked on the lunar surface. The last NASA astronaut set foot on the moon was back on Apollo 17, and that was Mission Commander Gene Cernan on December 14th, 1972. So it's high time we get back and seeing these lunar concepts, and now we know obviously the private industry are on board. This is going to be kind of interesting to see, especially starting in 2020. Now, European nations, they've given the green light, and it's a significant green light, because they've boosted the funding for their European Space Agency. And basically what that means is all the future programs and all the proposals that were laid out got approved. So it was a more than 20% rise in the ESA's three-year budget. And that's the largest boost the agency's ever seen in the last 25 years. Uh, it's one that's going to allow it to concurrently run two major orbiting observatories to look at x-rays and gravitational waves, uh, launch a mission to Uranus and Neptune, uh, join NASA in returning samples from Mars, and develop a reusable vehicle to take astronauts to and from space. So ESA's chief, Jan Warner, said, This reaffirms our common ambition for Europe. And in the past, it's always, you know, programs get cancelled or, you know, get put back on the back burner and we'll, we'll kind of deal with that later type of deal. But for this proposal, the agency, as Warner said, spent two years developing proposals and lobbying members for support. Uh, you know, it was funny, they joked, NASA has one government, we have 22. But as the ministers went through the 47-page list of programs, it became clear that not a single program had to stop. All in all, the ministers approved the budget, and it was 12.5 billion euros, and that's for the next three years, uh, a rise of 20% over 10.3 billion euros from the budget set in 2016. And Warner quote said, it was a surprise, more than I proposed, which is a very good message. Ministers also agreed an additional 1.9 billion euros to help with ESA's mandatory programs, which all members must contribute to in line with their gross domestic product, continue for two years if for some reason the next ministerial is delayed. One of those mandatory programs is science. And Warner said, you know, science is the backbone of what we do here at the ESA. With the stagnant budget over the last couple of decades and, you know, a couple of years, uh, the rate of mission launches it had slowed, and the European space scientists were anxious for more. Uh, one goal was to bring forward the 2034 launch date, 
of the Laser Interfere Meteor space antennae, which for short is LISA. Uh, it's a gravitational wave detector. And that was to run at the same time as the Athena X-ray Observatory because they share some of the same targets, such as black holes. In the ESA, they need to move really quick to join NASA because this probe is going to go off to Uranus and Neptune and, you know, you've got to wait for the alignment of planets, so it's a required launch date of 2030. So the science budget will now ramp up to $576 million per year by 2022. ESA's Earth Observation Program was another big winner. It received $1.8 billion over the next three years, so 29% more than what was originally requested. Uh, the program develops its own scientific satellites called the Earth Explorers, and it also builds up commercial monitoring satellites called Sentiels for the European Union under the Copernicus program. European Space Agency's Earth Observation Director, Joseph Asbacher, told the press conference that he had a very concrete list of how the money will be used. Top of the list is building more satellites to measure atmospheric carbon dioxide, to contribute components to the NASA-led Lunar Gateway Space Station, and to start building parts for the NASA ESA Mars Sample Return Mission. It's also adopted a French-German proposal for a lunar lander and rover, and Warner says that this is a good example of the ESA's Moon Village concept, a lunar outpost that, with various space agencies and commercial enterprises, can contribute to the idea that various space agencies and commercial enterprises can contribute to. He said, the idea is five years old now, and finally, we're coming to concrete actions. In transportation, ESA will move ahead with upgraded versions of its larger Arrain and medium Vega launchers, uh, and the agency will begin to develop its own capsule for transporting astronauts. Even though 80% of the support for the so-called Space Rider, which is a reusable rocket system, comes from one member state, which is Italy, Werner said, most importantly, Space Rider will fly and land. So that's setting up the ESA with a lot of funding going into 2020. So SpaceX did a static test of the Falcon 9 booster at the Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral, and this is all ahead of its planned launch on December 4th. So at around 5.30pm Eastern Standard Time, the Falcon 9 rocket roared to life, uh, smoke billowed from its engines, and it was all during this pre-flight test. Uh, the brief ignition, known as a static fire test, uh, standard as part of pre-launch procedures, and it's one of the last major milestones before liftoff. So during the test, the rocket it was held down to the pad while its nine first-stage engines are briefly fired, allowing the crew to ensure that all engines are working properly and that the rocket is ready to fly. Now, shortly after the test, SpaceX uh, tweeted that the static test fire was a success and that the company's planned to launch on December 4th. After launch, Dragon is expected to deliver its cargo of more than 5,700 pounds, and that's research gear and other supplies, to the International Space Station on December 7th. It should return back to Earth packed with experiments, uh, results, and all that kind of a stuff in a few weeks' time. The last time that the SpaceX Falcon 9 took to the skies was on November 11th, when a booster carried a fresh batch of 60 Starlink satellites to orbit before returning and landing on a floating platform out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, in addition to crew supplies, uh, tucked inside the Dragon is a host of scientific research that's gonna kind of support many experiments uh, during the expeditions 61 and 62. The star for this upcoming launch will be the new shiny Falcon 9 booster, which is a big contrast to the previous mission that featured a veteran booster, 
that was conducting, you know, it was on its fourth flight. Uh, so this is a first for SpaceX, and approximately eight minutes after launch, SpaceX intends to land the rocket in the first stage on one of the company's two drone ships, which is called Of Course I Still Love You. Uh, and that's going to be stationed similar to the Starlink launch out in the Atlantic Ocean. So unlike the Falcon 9, the big booster, uh, the Dragon, the little capsule thing at the top, has flown before. Uh, the CRS-19, uh, this is going to be the spacecraft's third trip to the space station. Uh, the Dragon previously delivered supplies for CRS-4 in 2014 and CRS-11 in 2017. But let's move on and talk about SpaceX's competitor, Blue Origin because they're starting to rapidly expand on several fronts, uh, especially their headquarters, which is in the south of Seattle, to a new beachhead in the Los Angeles area. Just three and a half years ago, Blue Origin's workforce was about 600 employees, and Bezos back then said his 300,000 square foot office and production facility in Kent was busting out of the seams. So now the employee count is around about two and a half thousand, it's heading towards three and a half thousand for the next year, and according to the report from Bangkok Space Conference, quoting Clay Maury, who's Blue Origin's Vice President for Global Sales, he said, To be sure, there are a lot of places to put those employees, including a rocket test facility nestled amid 165,000 acres of Bezos-owned ranch land in West Texas, and a 750,000 square foot New Glenn rocket factory in Florida plus a leased complex and a servicing center, a 200,000 square foot BE4 engine factory in Alabama, and a business office over in Arlington. So now you can add Los Angeles to the list. Uh, Blue Origin ramping up a California propulsion system design and development operation, uh, especially in the LA area, and that's to support the Kent, Texas, and Alabama teams. And for what it's worth, SpaceX's headquarters is located in Hawthorne, California, just a few blocks beyond Los Angeles' city limits. Virgin Galactic is headed down the road, you know, over in Long Beach, California. And Relativity Space, which was founded in Seattle by Blue Origin alumni, now has its home base near Los Angeles International Airport. But one thing's definitely clear. More and more of these places are popping up all over the place, and that's not a bad thing. That means that there's some serious moves being made, especially in the private industry, to make sure we go to the moon, Mars, and beyond. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. on X-Ray FM or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.